Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Anne Coleman. She is a mom, attorney, educator, and podcast host of Speaking of Teens. So she'll share her story about how she repaired her relationship with her son, who uh, struggled when he was a teenager, and there was a bit of tumultuous times there. Um, So I'm happy to have Anne here today talk about, you know, what's changed in her life, what she's been learning, and the good work she's been putting out there. So thank you so much, Anne. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little more about yourself? Sure. Okay. So yeah, we, I am, um, I'm an attorney that has now decided not to be an attorney anymore. So I'm going to help other parents get through what I went through with my son. And I say, I, it was me and my husband, but, um, he was a little more adept at it than I was. And so anyway, that's part of the story, but we, um, we adopted our son when he was, um, when he was born. So he came home with us from the hospital. He's my child, every bit my child. And actually he's just like me, which is really kind of weird, but um, he's now 22. But when he was an infant, even he cried all the time, all the time, all the time. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? And it was in, in my gut, I thought something is really this is just not right to cry like this all the time. And as he got a little bit older, he, um, he was into everything. First of all, he was just a handful. And uh, as they say, but he, um, when he was around two or three, he started complaining that he didn't feel good. And he, and I would say, what's, what's wrong, honey, tummy throat, tummy throat. And we never could figure it out you know, what it was. We'd take him to the gastro. We took him to allergists. We took him to the pediatrician. Nobody could figure out what it was. And finally, a friend of mine said, you know, you know that feeling you get when you're anxious because both she and I have anxiety where it's like your stomach and your chest and it's all like together. And I wonder if that's what he's talking about. And I thought, oh my God, you know, that would explain a lot. It would explain a lot about his behavior. He was a real fit thrower, we'd call it. I mean, he would throw down in the floor, you know, rear his back out when you didn't want to, you know, when he didn't want to go in the car seat and that kind of thing. So I thought, yeah, that does make sense. So as he got older and he started, he started a private school, Episcopal school, Primer, he was about, he was five, six, I guess at that time. And, um, and that's when the teacher complaints started. So we had teachers saying, Oh my gosh, okay, we can't get him to like start the task. And then we can't get him to stay on task. And um, it was just a struggle all the way through like first, second, third. Well, we got to second grade and the teacher says, you know, I think he might be ADHD. We think you might want to get him checked. So we did. And it was devastating. I don't know why it was so devastating for me to learn that he did have ADHD. And so then we started with all the medications, which if you don't have kids and you don't know about this, ADHD medications are hit or miss. And when they, they don't tell you that they also have anxiety as a side effect. And you don't also learn that ADHD also comes with a side of anxiety. Generally, it is, it's very low frustration tolerance and uh, you're, you're very dysregulated emotionally. So, but no one tells you this. 
So we went through all the way through elementary school with school being the issue. It was being on task, getting the homework done, getting the homework turned in after the homework's done, making sure he studies, making sure he stays you know, focused on this and this and this, trying all the different medications. Oh my God, that one's got side effects. Oh no, he's anxious again. Or you know, he's acting out. He never did any of these things at school. He was perfect at school, but it was at home where he would just you know, let us have it or the, the medication would be wearing off. He never slept because that's also a side effect of ADHD and of anxiety and of the medications. So it was just a constant battle of trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. We had no idea. So this went on and on and on and grades were really difficult. And this was one of those schools where it was, you know, what did they call it? Like, uh, academically rigorous, you know, and they had IB diplomas and AP diplomas and, you know, all the things, but by, and they weren't big on accommodations for kids like him with ADHD. Also, he had dysgraphia, dyslexia, slow processing speed, just all the things that make going to school just horrible for kids. And then they start pulling you out of class and trying to teach you Orton-Gillingham, which is for dyslexia. And so it, it becomes a thing where the kid's like, okay, I'm really different here, aren't I? You guys are pulling me out of class. I'm having to take medication. I'm having to go to a therapist. And so we could see that his love of school, which he really did have early on, was just dwindling. It was just dwindling. And by the time he hit eighth grade, which, you know, middle school, this is when puberty sets in. This is when their brain starts rearranging. And he was just having a worse time with the grades and studying and with teachers and teachers calling us. And it was constant conferences and all the stuff. And we finally said, you know what, maybe we need to put him in public school so he can have an IEP, which is, a, um, you know, what helps, they help kids with um, learning disabilities, ADHD and that kind of thing. They take them off and give them like extra help or extra time and all this stuff. And they're required to do it by law where private schools are not. So we decided that in ninth grade, as he was heading into high school, he would go and do this, um, do public school. So we did first year turned out pretty well. He was making A's and B's and he was hanging out with a new group of kids that he had met in, um, you know, since he was little, he'd been hanging out with them because they were all from our neighborhood and they were, um, they all played t-ball together and then baseball and soccer and all these things. So he knew these kids, but they, you know, they weren't kids he'd gone to school with all this time. So by the end of ninth grade, we discovered that he had been smoking weed all year long and we should have known, we should have caught it. Um, he was going down the street every afternoon to play basketball with these group of boys. And we even checked on him. Yes, they're playing basketball. That looks, I mean, everything seems fine. And, but he would come home afterwards and I, I can laugh now, but he would be starving to death and his eyes would be puffy or, or blurry looking. And I'd say, have you been, in, I mean, this is how dumb I am. Have you been inside with your cat? Cause he's allergic to cats. He's like, yes, that's it. <laughs> yes. I was inside with the cat. So it was just, it was mind boggling when we learned this, that he was smoking weed at the end of ninth grade, been doing it all year because we had raised him. So we were so diligent about talking about drugs and talking about the, the, um, you know, the way that it can ruin your life because my brother was a drug addict. 
I grew up in a home with a drug addict. He was younger than me, but he started really young and went all the way through high school. When I was in high school, he was already using drugs really bad. And he became a heroin addict and then finally a meth addict. And he had died, I think, just a few years, maybe a year or two before my son hit um, ninth grade. So all that was very in the front of my mind. And so we we taught him, you know, oh, no, mom, I'm never going to do that. I would never, ever do drugs. Never, ever, 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 ever. Well, the brain, when you're going through adolescence, that that reward system is a lot stronger than it is in childhood or adulthood. And I've learned all this since then. So he did. And, you know, he was, I think, when you're ADHD and you have anxiety, you have several strikes against you as far as, you know, trying not to do these things and trying not to act out. It's just, you have several strikes against you there. It just happens. So anyway, he started smoking weed. We found out, we said, no, we went through all of 10th grade where he was hiding it really well. Um, we were kind of suspicious here and there. We didn't have too many horrible problems that I can recall, but it was at the end of 10th grade. His girlfriend moved out of the country. He got in a fight with one of these new friends at this new school over a girl who liked him and, and it, it was a mess. And then all the boys turned on him and started bullying him online. So we dealt with all that riding by the house and screaming things at him. And he became so depressed. We had him evaluated. He was um, he was uh, diagnosed with major depression. With um, he had some suicidality going on. He had major anxiety. <clears throat> so it was all these things were culminating, and it was really horrible. We had school refusal. He didn't want to go to school, and just the acting out just got worse and worse and worse. So. He started acting out with the marijuana. He started hanging out with the wrong crowd. He started getting in trouble at school. He started getting in trouble with the police. It was like my my perfect little child, who had been so wonderful all these years, had just started like just losing his mind. It was just crazy. And my husband and I would look at each other. He would say things that we were like, what the hell is he talking about? I mean, this is so irrational. We could not understand why he was acting the way he was acting, why he was doing all these things that were just not like him, and why he was hanging out with these people. But, you know, he had been shunned by his his group. So that's one reason he started doing it. But he it just kind of spiraled all through that first, um, his junior year of high school. And because of my brother and because of the things that were going on in my head and what I associated smoking weed with and doing all these things, I started just absolutely trying to control his every move. I I dropped the hammer and I said, you know, you're not going here. You're not doing this. I was very, I became very authoritarian about everything because I was scared to death that he was going to end up a drug addict. I was scared to death that he was going to die. I mean, that's how it feels. And, and so that emotion just took me over and where my husband was being very, um, you know, rational about things and trying to be more reasonable and trying to discuss things with him. 
my reaction was, oh, we're not discussing anything. He is not going to do this. I mean, I'm done. I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I said, I am so done with this. And I was, I was, um, you know, just highly reactive. Well, that does not work with adolescents. I've, I've since found out. I mean, if you want to to get rebellion going, try to control your adolescent. I mean, it just does not work. But I did not have. I just did not have the emotional regularity. I did not have the emotional awareness. I really dis- didn't even know this was about fear. I didn't even realize it was about my brother until later, you know, reflecting back, I was doing the only thing I knew to do, which what do you do when you have a kid acting out? You try to make them stop. You try to fix things. You try to, you know, make sure they can't do the thing that they're doing. And that's all I knew. And unfortunately, we had at least two psychiatrists on the case. We had at least two psychologists we were working with. We had at least three or maybe four different therapists, and not one of them talked to us about what was going on at home and how we were responding to his behavior. It was all about him. And of course, I made it all about him because I was like, fix him. Something is wrong here. He need, I mean, why is he acting this way? Fix him. And that was my mentality was he needed to be fixed. He needed to be repaired. And unfortunately, all these professionals didn't question that, didn't question it at all. They never said, but how are you responding to him? How, how is it that, you know, you as a parent are possibly exacerbating this situation? Nobody said a word. So we carried on like that forever um, until he was almost 18. He was a couple of months away from turning 18 when just all hell broke loose. And he, all during this time when he would act out with us at home, he had these huge rages, I would call them, where he would, he beat uh, holes in every solid wood door that we had in the house. There were holes in the walls. The final straw was he flipped over our freestanding kitchen island, which was huge and heavy butcher block on top. He flipped it over. And on that day, by that point, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, everyone had said, you know what? We don't know what else to do here. And, you know, if, if something else happens, you're just going to have, he needs inpatient treatment. He needs to go into the hospital and then residential therapy. And we're like, okay. I mean, we didn't know any better. And he was, he was dabbling in different kinds of drugs by now. He was, you know, trying ecstasy and lean, which is some kind of weird mixture of cough syrup and something else. And so it was escalating. And he was so angry at us all the time that that our home was a battlefield. Literally, it was horrible. So when they said that, we were like, okay, he just knocked over the kitchen island. I guess maybe it's time to go to the hospital. And so we had him um, had to have him picked up by the police. And in our neighborhood, you just don't do that. You just don't see the police. So my phone was blowing up with all the neighbors going, oh my goodness, what's happened? You know, all the Karens in the neighborhood were very, very concerned about what was happening at our house. So we had to have him taken to the ER, had to have him admitted to a psychiatric hospital, stayed there for a week, 
then went straight into residential treatment across the country in California. He was there for two months. And looking back now, I think it, the good thing about that was, and I would tell this to anyone that that is at this point where you feel like your child needs this extra treatment, is that what that does, sending them away like this, which I hate to even think about that day because it was horrible, but it does kind of um, jerk them into reality and puts them in a different environment where you know, you've kind of gotten into this spiral where nothing is seeping in other than the toxic nastiness that you've got going on in your home and no one can get through. And and it's the whole family. It's not just the kid. It's everyone gets into this mode of just, oh my God, frustration and desperation and fear and anger. And so getting him out of that environment with us. And for us, having him away and out of that environment for two months, plus the daily counseling he was getting, the group counseling he was getting, all the things. He did not want to be there, but it did sort of break that monotony and that toxicity. So we were told that when he came out of residential treatment, that you didn't want to take him back to the home where all these things had happened, where he had been hanging out with the wrong people, where he had been dabbling in drugs. And we're like, well, where the hell are we supposed to take him? I mean, what do you mean? We can't, well, there's um, therapeutic boarding schools and, you know, they're 30 or $40,000 a year. And we're like, well, no, because he's, I mean, he's almost 18. He's been doing online school. He's almost ready to graduate. I mean, we're, we're not going to do that. We can't afford to do that. Well, you just don't need to take him back home. Well, the only other place we had to go, we were living in South Carolina at the time. The only other place we had to go was my mother's house in Alabama. So we picked him up in California and brought him straight to Alabama, which he was not happy about because he was planning on going back to all of his friends, a girlfriend that he had and all this kind of stuff. So we brought him here. And when he was in residential treatment, the we had weekly family therapy with him online and, and we were visiting every other weekend, but one family therapist, finally, we had a family therapist who saw that my interactions with him were just like, I mean, my baseline was like zero. I had no clue how to communicate with him. And luckily this man saw that and said, you know what? You need to read, let me, let me suggest this book, No Drama Discipline by Dan Siegel and teen, Tina Payne Bryson. And it is a book for parents of toddlers. And I was like, when I went to look at it, I was like, wait a minute. But that's literally where I was because I just did not know what I was doing. So I start reading this book and it's talking about emotions and emotion. What I learned later is emotion coaching and validating your child's feelings. and, And I'm literally crying as I'm reading this book because I'm like, why did no one tell me this stuff before? Why? I have read, I mean, a library full of parenting books, but they were all about ADHD, learning disabilities, you know, strong-willed children, children who act out. And none of them talked about the actual, you know, behind the scenes, the emotions and what you have to learn to get through these things. So I'm reading this book on, oh my God, Okay, so 
That's what you do when this happens, when he's throwing a fit. Instead of ignoring him, you try to talk him through it and you try to talk about his emotions and validate how he's feeling. And and I'm like, I mean, I could not have gotten this more wrong. So I kept reading. And when we brought him back to Alabama, I kept reading and I kept studying. And I and my first thought when I started learning all this stuff was, I know damn well if I didn't know this stuff, because I'm a pretty smart cookie. I mean, I'm not an idiot. If I didn't know this, I know there are other parents out there who are struggling with their teenagers who have no idea how to do these things, how to talk about emotions, how to keep their own emotions in check, how to not punish, but, you know, teach them skills and how to, you know, get through this period of time when their reward system is is revved up and their emotional system is revved up. How do we get through this in one piece and actually teach them how to be an adult? So I I studied now, it's been about five years now since all this happened. So, I mean, I started studying the adolescent brain and, you know, adolescent, well, neuro, neurobiology and neuropsychology and how all these things fit together. And I've studied emotion theory and emotion coaching and I mean, just all the things. And so that I can help other parents learn this stuff because it is not intuitive for most of us. Most of us raising kids were raised by parents who were raised by other parents who have always believed that you you make a kid obey you like a dog, that it is all about obedience and that it's all about doing things the boss's way, the parent's way, and that it is all about making sure that they do everything the way you think it should be done. And, you know, to some people, thinking in any other way is just so foreign that they would never consider it. I mean, I I still know people now who would say, well, you're crazy. Of course, the parent's the boss. Well, (laughs) not really. When they hit puberty and they feel like they're an adult, we have to take a step back and we have to parent them in a way that they're going to respond to it. Because if we keep trying to treat them like they're a child and we keep trying to push the obedience and we punish them and we do all the things, they are not going to respond to it. And it is going to end up just like what happened to me. I I know that now looking back that if we had handled things a different way when we first found out that he was smoking marijuana, if I had had enough emotional awareness to realize that how that struck me and what that did to me internally, I could have taken a step back and go, okay, now I don't need to go crazy about this. I need to treat this like any other thing. And I need to find out why he's doing it. And what is it that he's trying to fill? Is he trying to medicate his anxiety? Is it because he wants to fit in with these other kids? You know, what is it? get curious about it. But I didn't do that. So that is not the way it turned out. But anyway, after after all this time and learning all these things, I've been able to put together like, you know, this whole framework of how parents can learn how to do this and how to parent their teenagers so that they're not in this total chaos of of, you know, arguing and 
discontent all the time and how their kids will actually listen to them and they can stay connected and they can, you know, teach them how to do things the right way without punishing. I see people all the time, parents on Facebook who say, okay, I don't know what else to do. I've taken away their phone. I've taken their door off the hinges. I've taken everything out of their room, but a mattress, I've nailed their windows shut and they're still sneaking out and drinking and smoking and doing all the things. And I'm like, yeah, because you've gone in the opposite direction. You did what I did. And that is not how you do it. So anyway, that's my mission is to help parents learn that it is not about, you know, this bossing, authoritarianism, you know, obedience and punishing, that there is a totally different way to do it where they respond differently. And the reason I know this is not just from books, but when my son came home, I started doing this with him. I start, I was really getting my emotions together. I was figuring out what was going on in my brain and why I was so reactive. And at first it was really difficult because I was like, okay, I'm supposed to validate his feelings. What am am I supposed to say? How do I do that again? And it was really difficult. But once I started doing it within maybe two or three weeks, because he was still having fits when he got home, but the way I responded to it was different. And then the fits just kind of stopped. His raging just kind of went away. And we were suddenly able to talk again. And then he didn't seem as angry. Over the period of several months, he became a different kid. Our family was totally, completely different. And within a year, it was like I had my kid back. He was smiling and happy and not anxious anymore. And I mean, just like when he gets on planes and that kind of thing, but he was hugging me. And, you know, we, we talked through all these things about how I really messed up and I apologized and I, and I've started teaching him about mindfulness and about his emotions and what I had not taught him, you know, all these years. And it literally changed everything. It was amazing. And it still is amazing. He, he has, he just came home. He's 22, just came home. He visited this summer. He's a pro snowboarder in Colorado. That's what he does. So he's out there during the winter and then he takes a break during the summer. And, um, anyway, he was here and he did have one tiny meltdown while he was here. The first one I've seen in about five years, it'll be five years this month. And it was, it was pretty serious because all his, his uh, friend's car was stolen and all of his ski stuff was in there and he just had a meltdown over it. So, you know, if you have anxiety, you, you always have anxiety and things like that are going to hit you wrong. But the way I handled it was completely different than I would have handled it a few years ago. If he yelled, I yelled. If he pitched a fit, I would say calm down, which is not what you just don't do that. That's, that's invalidating their emotions. But so I handled it completely different. And instead of that escalating, it died down within, you know, an hour and where before we would have still been angry and having the same conversation and the same argument for days on the end. So 
you know, I'm here to tell you that, you know, we can, we can be told from the time they're little, you know, they say, well, it's not your fault how they behave or, you know, they start acting out in high school. Well, you didn't do this. This is not your fault. You know, they're, you have to realize they're separate kids. Well, that's true, but, but the way we parent our behavior impacts our kids. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. There's no way around this. And if we can't regulate ourselves emotionally, if we don't know what's going on within us and the, why we're reacting to our kids the way we do, and, and we can't learn how to do some of these things and communicate with them better and help them learn how to deal with their own emotions, then we just don't have a chance of getting through these really tough years with everyone intact. It's just awfully hard, but it's not too late to learn either because I literally did not start learning this stuff until a month or two before his 18th birthday. And so it is just not too late. People are like, oh my God, my kid's 13. Is it too late? I'm like, no, it's not too late. You got plenty of time, trust me. So learning how to be a different parent is is hard. And learning how to change your mindset when you've been raised this way, when maybe most of the people around you, you know, think this way. Um, your parents were raised this way. You might have in-laws saying, oh my God, you're being too, you know, you're being passive or permissive or whatever, but they're not the ones that have to live with your kids and your kids are counting on you to do the right thing and to, you know, show up for them. So that's, that's my goal is to just get this out there and get this through people's heads that there's a different and a better way to do this than the way we've all been told is the better way. Yes. And to hear you share the story, you know, of now he's in his early twenties and things are a world of difference. You know, you've figured out more about yourself and what you need to be doing as a parent. Um, and I believe you mentioned at the beginning how, you know, you know, really no longer are really a practicing attorney. So what has the shift been like there in switching to laws, rules, yeah. regulation to more like emotional maturity yeah. and <laughs> helping as as parenting? Like, right. It's a big difference, but it is a wonderful difference. I love it. Love it. Love it. Because it it's it's um, I feel like I'm helping and I know I'm helping because I have people tell me I'm helping. So being an attorney it's fun and it's interesting, you know, to a certain point, but, you know, I've done it for what, 28 years, something like that. And that is long enough. And when this came, you know, came about all this stuff over the last few years, I really could not concentrate on work much at all. When things, you know, are falling apart at home, it's hard to concentrate on work and I just started, you know, kind of separating myself from it more and more. And over the last several years, we've been living in Alabama. We got to Alabama. My mother was 85. She started falling and breaking bones. So we've never left. Sold our home in South Carolina. We're here in Alabama. So it was a little difficult to, you know, still practice and do what I was doing in another state with the clients that I had. And so I just kind of let, let things kind of dwindle down. 
And um, I just finished up with my last client several months ago, and I could not be happier because what I'm doing now feels so much more helpful. It feels so much more, you know, and I don't, I mean, I haven't made a dime. I, you know, maybe hopefully one of these days I will, but it, I mean, I've been doing this for four years for free and with the podcast and I, I, you know, write free parenting guides and, you know, I, I help people if they call me or text me or DM me or email me or whatever, because I've been that mom who was desperate to get help for her child and to figure out what was going on. And I know how that feels. And I get goosebumps just talking about it. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. And I just don't want anyone to feel that way. So, you know, I feel like this is my mission. I mean, really, you know, people say, oh, my mission is to do this. Well, I mean, literally, I feel like this is my mission is to help other parents not have to go through this and to help them see the light and see that they need to change their, you know, their behavior with their kids. So, I mean, it's been a wonderful shift. I mean, I love it. I love feeling like I'm helping when I see people, you know, reviews of my podcast, or I get emails from people that say, oh my God, you've helped me so much. I mean, it is, it's just so affirming and it just, you know, it fuels me to keep going and to make sure that I don't stop. So yeah, I love it. Which is a great place to be. Now, did you mm -hmm. grow up wanting to be an attorney or was that like not the original plan? Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. I grew up, well, I grew up here actually. No, when I was, I, my parents were in business, always had businesses. So my plan was always to be, you know, a business person. And I did start my first business when I was 20 and left that and turned it over to my mother to go to law school when I was 27. So I was a little bit later. I was about six years older than everyone else starting with me. But um, no, I was trying to get out of a bad marriage and get away from this small town. And that was my ticket out was to move two hours away and go to law school. So literally, I thought, okay, I know this guy from high school that went, I know, I know if he can do it, I can do it. And I was like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving town. See you later. And that's what I did. So I literally went to law school to get out of this podunk town and to get away from a bad first husband. And then I end up moving back 30 years later. So here I am. But, you know, I'm glad I went. I'm glad I had this experience. I feel like, you know, law, if I had not um, studied and done what I've done, I don't know that I could have taught myself neurobiology. I don't know that I could have learned what I've learned and dissected what I've dissected. I literally wrote myself a book. I love research and writing. And so I have, um, you know, read thousands of scientific studies. I have read umpteen thousand books. I have read so many journal articles and all about adolescence and parenting adolescents. And I literally wrote myself a book with hundreds of citations just so I could convince myself that I knew what I was talking about. So, because all, everything I talk about is science-based, I'm a big believer in, in the research. And so everything that I talk about is research oriented, everything, every podcast that I put out, if it's a solo podcast, I'm doing heavy, heavy research and providing all the resources and the sources. That's just what I love. And, and it makes a difference, I think. So yeah, that it, going to law school was n not ever really in the plan until my friend Doug Benson went to law school. And I thought, okay, if he can do it, I can do it because he's nut. 
<laughs> so that's where that's where I ended up. But and again, I love it. It was fun, and it it got me, you know, to where I am, and you know, being able to figure this stuff out and distill it down into frameworks for other people to teach it. So it, it you know, thank God I went. <laughs> I guess that's why I went. <laughs> right. Now, what is it like being back in, you know, a town that you tried to get out of? Like, is oh, it, Lord. is it better for you now? Well, I stay in front of the computer at least 14 hours a day. So, and there, and there goes my dog. So we knew that was going to happen at some point. Um, so I stay in front of the computer. I don't really get out a whole lot because there's not a whole lot here for me. It is, it's rural Alabama. And, um, you know, we lived in Greenville, South Carolina, which is a lovely little city. And we were very entrenched in, you know, our neighborhood and our, our town. And then to move back here, I don't really know anybody anymore. It's still very small, 16,000, maybe 18,000 people, something like that. Um, but I don't feel like I know anybody. I've got a, a group of girls that we have started hanging out a little bit. So that's nice. But other than that, I just kind of sit to myself and and work on this stuff and help other people because I love it and I'm an introvert and I'm not, you know, so I'm not really missing anything. It's okay. I don't want to run into my um, ex-husband. That was the only thing I was scared about that for like the first year. And then I realized that that's never going to happen. So it's okay. It's all good. Good. Now, if you're willing to share, I'm curious just because, you know, it might be something that some people have a bias against or are thinking about in the back of their mind. Everything you went through with your son, you're on a better side of places now. He was adopted. So was that ever kind of part of the argument, the story, and like part of that growth? Yeah, you know, actually... Yes. I think looking back now, and I've learned more about this just recently, actually, that adoption, you know, you think about adoption being, um, you know, causing trauma when the kids are older, when they've maybe experienced neglect and abuse at home, maybe they've been in the foster care system, and then you adopt a child who's a little bit older, you know, you know, there's going to be some issues there that you need to deal with. But what I did not realize is that Adoption, even from birth, is a traumatic experience for the child. And it is, you know, it's it's interesting because when we brought him home from the hospital that first night, he he didn't cry until about midnight. And then he started crying and he didn't stop for like three or four months, like just cried and cried. And we, you know, it's weird, but that first night when he started crying like that, I thought, he misses his mother. I, that was my first instinct. And my husband tried to, you know, help me just put that in the back of my mind. That's not true. Oh my gosh, no. But I knew instinctively, you know, in the womb, you become attached. You hear the voice, you, you know, you know, the surroundings. I mean, it's a thing. So, and it was very traumatic when she kind of turned him over to us. It was, you know, we were all crying. And so, you know, I had that in my head. I knew that that had to be a thing somewhere, but for years, I kind of put it out of my mind. But you know, it was um, the anxiety, the ADHD, all that was hereditary, which is interesting because I also have ADHD and anxiety. So it wouldn't have mattered if I had given birth to him or adopted him because it would have been the same thing. Um, you know, I've always said, you know, God just knows what kid you're supposed to have because he is mine through and through. 
But yes, I do think trauma played into it. I think that he, I don't even think he realizes that because we did, we um, had an open adoption. We, um, he knows his birth siblings. He know you know, they're all half siblings. He knows his birth mother. Um, as a matter of fact, he just hung out with them um, for like three or four days, not too long ago, a few weeks ago. And they hadn't seen each other in several years, but they reached out to him on Instagram. And so he has an older sister and a younger brother and a younger sister. They're all right about the same age. And none of them were adopted out. He was the only one. And they all have red hair. He has brown hair. It, it's so interesting. He looks like me. And, but he has no, and this is what I was hoping from doing this open adoption thing. He doesn't seem to have too many hangups about the adoption. Although I know deep down there has to be, there has to be trauma. And I asked him when he saw the, the um, his siblings not too long ago, I'm like, was that, how was that for you? You know, how, how, how did you feel about that? And he was like, oh, it was great. It was great. And, um, but you know, there's gotta be some more going on in there. I'm sure. I'm sure he thinks about why did she place me for adoption? Not the other three. They all were raised by her mother. Um, but you know, and it's just, it's an interesting thing to see this happen when your kid has an open adoption. My cousin was adopted. She grew up not knowing who her birth family was. It tormented her. It tortured her. She searched for years until she found them. And I just thought, you know, I'm not doing that to my kid. I just, you know, I think it's just not fair. And so we just kind of played it by ear all those years. And I let him decide, you know, when he wanted to see them and what he wanted to do, you know, it was really, it was very easy. And so it's never, that part of it's never been a thing, but yes, I, I do. I can tell you that when he was at residential treatment, there were several adopted kids there. It, it, it's, that's always the case. Um, and kids who are adopted later in life, they are going to have much more trauma associated with it. And trauma is is something that just comes back up and back up and back up, you know, through your whole life. And um, it's 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 something that comes out with kids with cutting, depression, anxiety, and it, it's really hard, I think, to get to the root of that sometimes. But anyway, yeah, I do think that um, adoption definitely plays into it if your kid is adopted. If your kid has ADHD. If your kid has a learning difference, if your kid is different in any way, shape, or form, all of those things are going to play into their adolescence where it might come up and cause some problems. Um, it's just, it's such a hard and difficult year, few years when it's not really just a few years, it's like from age 10 to about age 25. But it's so difficult already with all the changes that their brain is going through that if you throw any kind of difference in there at all, where they, they don't feel like they're quote unquote normal or like everyone else, um, you know, it, it, it makes it so much more difficult for them to handle their emotions, to, you know, handle everything that's going on around them. It's just like, like, um, trans and bi and, and LBGTQA plus they all have more depression, more anxiety, 
they they have so many more issues because of what they have to deal with on a daily basis and what they're dealing with inside and outside. And, um, you know, so yes, if, if your kid has any kind of even a learning difference, it can, you know, you really need to pay more attention to things that come up with them and pay more attention to their emotions and be really on top of it. Not that you shouldn't be on top of it anyway, but, you know, I knew this, I knew that kids with ADHD and anxiety were prone to addiction. And I knew there was addiction in his family. There was addiction in my family. So I knew these things, but I didn't really know how, well, what do I do with that information? You know, how do I handle that? Well, I should have known more about what I didn't know. And that was my behavior and the emotions and the, you know, the whole thing. So yeah, it's a thing. (laughs) I appreciate you sharing that and also sharing about, you know, with everything that you're doing to help other parents, you're really, you know, founding everything in science and, you know, what is out there from the professionals who are doing the research and, and reading that and getting that out in probably say easier terms um, than some of those scientific articles you're reading. Yes. I had to sit with those scientific articles with like a textbook on, on one screen and then this over here and literally dissect them until I figured out so many of just the basics to understand the stuff. So it's fascinating though. And, and good work to be doing. Yeah. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, the biggest thing, I think my biggest message is that we need to break this, I mean, this cycle, this generational cycle that we've got going of how we parent our kids and the assumptions that we make about parenting that are just getting us nowhere and realize that when our kids are acting out and doing things wrong, that it's not necessarily them, that we have to start looking at our own behavior and our own responses to them and to figure things out. And, um, and that's what I'm trying to do is to help people figure things out and figure out how to do it a different way. So my message would be, look at your parenting, look at how it's been going for you. And if it's not going so great, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yes, it's a great message to have. And I appreciate everything you've shared today. Sure. At the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have to do Uh-oh. with what we've been talking about. So my question for you today is what sports did you play growing up? <laughs> that is so interesting because I just interviewed a woman about sports the other day. Not one single freaking thing. I was not into sports. I was intimidated and nervous and anxious. And listen, the first sport I played was at the country club. I played tennis and I played in the very lowest level of tennis. And those girls scared the hell out of me. They were so competitive. So that was, I did that for like one year. And then I was like, this is not my life. This is not me. Yep. Not competitive. I did start running in law school my third year and I ran for years until it wore out my hip and I had to have a hip replacement. And so, yeah, I was 40 something in there with all the 80 year olds getting a hip replaced. So no more sports for me. It's all like really soft aerobics now.
All right, that brings this episode to a close. So of course, I'll be leaving Anne's website in the description. So that will bring you to her podcast. It will bring you to more information about her. She also has a nice free resources tab. So, you know, some of the stuff she's talked about and collected, that is all right there on her website. So feel free to go check that out. She also has a Facebook group. So I will be leaving that in the description as well. If you'd like to go see what's taking on in those conversations over there. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description that brings you to to all of our past episodes, resources. It brings you to our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So feel free to go follow those pages. That support is always appreciated. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, Anne, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.